0: Wine Odyssey series, part of Corkerport Podcast Media. My name is Paul Brady. I'm a content contributor for Corkerport, and today we say goodbye to one of the great New York City jazz clubs, The Jazz Standard, which had a really important program for domestic wines, including those from New York and my home state of Michigan. Joining me is the longtime manager of the club, Grant Gardner. Hey, Grant. Hello. And jazz saxophonist and a frequent performer at the club, John Arabagon. Hey, John.
1: How are you doing, Paul?
0: I'm good. I wish we were all chatting under uh, more fun circumstances, but I'll uh, – that's the sound of me opening tw- a beer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: such is 2020, right?
0: Such is 2020. I'm going to pour a little of this beer on the floor right now. Yeah, pour one out. <laughs> or, I choir. wish we were
2: We're talking in a dark, damp basement Three in the morning, but <laughs> instead, we're home.
0: Um, speaking of pouring out drinks, Grant, there's been some pouring out of some drinks on the internet in the great name of the club. Do you care to elaborate and and uh, and, and uh, bring John up to speed on what that's been all about?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are coming – just coming to terms with the fact that it's gone, um, you know, some quicker than others. And, you know, I think I'm one of those people in the camp that, you know, still being at union square hospitality had heard rumors of this coming for a while, but not knowing where it landed. And then seeing an official notice and, you know, just seeing the reaction of so many people and how many people the club connected to in particular, that it's just, you know, I think it's the impact of its closure and how people feel about it is going to be longer than just a week or two. It's, you know, it's going to be a while um, and a lot of incredible you know reactions and, and feedback and memories people are posting online. And um, yeah, I don't think it's even set in for me yet. You know, even hearing your intro, I was like, Oh my gosh, right. The club's gone. You know, it's almost like
0: there really like, has been, quite an outpouring from musicians in particular about the yeah. closing of the club. That's been pretty nice, kind of nice to see. Um, we'll get to that later. John, initial thoughts on the closing of the club?
1: Oh, this is this is the end of an era. Uh, I basically moved to New York around the same time this Jazz Center opened. Uh, some of my most important gigs and uh, career... <laughs> Advancements happened there. Some of the greatest music, imp- improvisatory music, I saw in all of my stay in New York uh, happened there, and it was simultaneously the classiest and the the most like down in the trenches club that you could have. And it was it was the one of the most important spots for jazz musicians, bar none, for, for its entire run.
0: Yeah. I'm kind of curious because, so I moved to New York in 2008 and that was the first time I went to the club. I moved in July. And I think the first time I went to club was to the club was later in like September or October and going back even that far. Yeah. The club pretty much remained the same from what it was then up until the last time I went there, which was sometime in, I don't know, 2019, I guess. Um, Either one of you guys, or I guess John, did you see the club change at all really over the years? I mean it's always been barbecue and it's always had really great bookings.
1: Oh man, it was it was the highest level from the beginning. And yeah, actually at some point the chef changed and so some of the food changed, but it was (laughs) but it was all high quality and it was, you know, for, for us musicians, it was if you got a chance to play there or you got a chance to go see some music there, you knew what you were going to get. You knew you were going to get the highest caliber of music. You knew you were going to get the friendliest staff in all of New York, musician-friendly staff. You knew you were going to get great sound no matter where you sat in that room. And uh, it was a night that you knew was just going to be the highest quality that you could have. There were no X factors.
0: Grant, do you remember going to the club as a civilian before you before you there? <laughs> civilian, I love that.
2: Yeah, my first show was Tomas Stanko. I think Craig Taborn was playing keyboards, and I just have this vivid memory. And in fact, I, you know, one of our amazing servers who spent years there with me wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a great piece online about her memories of the club. And did you see that, her, John?
1: Such a great really piece. Dead. Such yeah. a great piece.
2: It's fantastic. And I immediately, after reading it, just went and started writing down memories I had. And the first one that came out was this like Tomas Stanko show that I saw. I, you know, I didn't know who Danny Meyer was. I didn't know Seth who booked the club. I just knew my friend and I were going to go down to that club we'd heard about when we were at Berkeley school of music. And like, you know, we always saw the ads of like, Oh man, look, Mike Moreno's playing on a Tuesday night. We got to get down to New York and just like that show is ingrained in my memory. And, And John, to your point, Back then, I was just like, "Whoa, this place is like, it's classy, but it's also like down and dirty." And I can get a whiskey, but I don't have a lot of money, so I can get like a good snack, and it just it checks so many boxes, you know, as a guest.
0: So, I just want to uh, chat a little bit about both of your backgrounds. So, Grant, you and I have almost identical backgrounds. <laughs> we have come to figure out. Yeah. So we each went to school for jazz guitar for undergrad and then we each got a master's in jazz also this time at the same school at Rutgers University although I don't think we were there at the same time
2: yeah no overlap but uh, a lot of overlapped experiences
0: and and then finally met for the first time actually after I had quit playing music professionally and was in wine and restaurants at that time and I think we met in a wine tasting group for the first time right
2: yeah, and possibly in the basement of Jazz Standard, or maybe I think, upstairs. I think the first the tasting
0: group was supposed to be upstairs at Blue Smoke, but it, we ended up going down in the club.
2: Yeah, that was the beauty of the the club is most days open, you know, during the daytime, so we could do things like uh, taste Sancerre at nine in the morning.
0: <laughs> and John, you and I both attended the same undergraduate school, DePaul University, but I think. We missed each other by like a year. Right. And then did you go right from Chicago to New York after graduating?
1: Uh, I took a year where I was just playing in Chicago and teaching and figuring stuff out. And I realized during that year, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm just trying to do this music thing anyway. So let me try to do that for real and head out to New York to try to dedicate myself to it.
0: And you you went to Manhattan School of Music and then Juilliard, correct?
1: That's right. That was my attempt to be a legitimate jazz person. Go to go to both schools in a row.
2: I think you succeeded in your attempt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I think.
0: <laughs> right on. I want to go back and touch on something, John, that that you mentioned, which was sort of the combination of music food and drinks and how the jazz standard uniquely really nailed all three of those things and all all of us have been either performed at or hung out at clubs all over the country and I genuinely can't think of another club where you can eat, drink and hear music at the highest level. All all three of those things at the highest level. I remember so the first time I went to the club back in 08, my parents came to visit me from Michigan in New York and I took them to the club and I remember it was Chris Potter underground playing that week. And, you know, that's my parents kind of, uh, they like jazz. They, they prefer sort of traditional jazz, but even, you know, parents or anyone who don't care for really really virtuosic or avant-garde or just a loud group like that even when you're when you when you're in that club it's impressive nonetheless because first of all you know you're only going to be there for one set of music so it's like okay if you're someone who just likes traditional jazz and all of a sudden this group is making sounds that you've never heard before it's still because of the high level is impressive even to ears that just don't know how to Comprehend that kind of music. And then, on top of that, from the minute you walk down those stairs and get to the host stand and get to your table and get your first drinks and eat, all of that is sort of the perfect like hospitality music club package wrapped in a bow that I can think of. Grant, have you experienced that in any other clubs across the country?
2: I wish. You know, I could say yes, not to pat ourselves on the back, but um, I remember a night where Danny came in and and he had been dining at one of the other restaurants and he brought a friend over to sort of show off the club and the smokers in the back of the building. And he just said to me, who else, who else is doing what you guys do, what we do on all those levels that you just mentioned, you know, across the board. And I just looked at him and it was one of those moments where you you stop in the middle of what you're doing and go, oh, right. Like there's maybe some clubs with some better talent sometimes or more famous people, or there's maybe some clubs that might have better food or they you know, they do different aspects really well, but it's like for the whole package and the whole experience, like, yeah, to your point, it just, it delivered on, on all levels and it, it, by design. And, you know, that's how it was built. You know, I was just lucky to inherit it and get to run it for a little while the way I see it.
0: It seems like a pretty simple formula, doesn't it? But it's probably not. John, any other clubs that you can think of across the country where you literally on like your night off would want to go and eat dinner?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, just like just like Grant said, it was it. It's just an. Incredible well, I guess time. you'd want to go
0: there to, to hear music, but like to also <laughs> like eat and drink, right? Let's say you didn't like love the music, but you still might want to go just because the hang and the food was so good.
1: I mean, are you kidding me? Like the, like when I got to play there, I would have some of the craziest micro brews that were not available anywhere, but somehow the jazz standard in the basement had it, you know, like some of the, some of the greatest food I had ever while I was playing. So some of that food's probably still stuck in my horn. You know what I mean? Um, it was incredible, <laughs> but it, like the, com- so. the combination of the high musicianship and the high, the high quality of drinks and the high quality of food, like you can't forget the high quality of service. And like that, that Emily Alcott, uh, memorial of the of the club like brought a tear to my eye because as from the musician's standpoint, we could feel, you know, whether we talked to the service or not, like we could feel that they were behind us. And I've been a part of some of those nights where the music might be a little weird and maybe some unsuspecting guests would have stormed out in a huff because it, this wasn't jazz. This isn't traditional New Orleans jazz or whatever. And you could feel that the staff was on your side. So as a musician, as a performer and an artist, like the the food was top notch, the the drinks were top notch, but the, but the camaraderie with with the people who worked there was un, unmatched in all of New York. And that's some of the most important parts. I'll take, take away from the jazz standard with me.
0: Let's talk about beverages. Cause that was uh, an important part of, uh, for me to want to just go and hang out at the club, but also in my work life too. And Grant, uh, I want to touch on some of that with you. Do you remember, since you mentioned beer, John, Grant, was am I imagining this, or wasn't there like a pretty kick-ass horizontal of Blackberry Farm stuff?
2: Yeah, that, that was <laughs> in for a while. There's some good stuff. Um, and you know, it's funny, this is one of those aspects where I think uh, the club benefited in so many ways from from that being sort of the part of the blue smoke and, and union square, you know, DNA and family that um, gosh, for probably almost a decade, you know, John, just beer in particular, we had a guy uh, named Ian Lundquist who was upstairs and went on to run the well and work at beer street and some of like the most iconic beer places in New York city and run some of these, the best programs. He knows everyone in the whole scene and we got to a point where we realized he knew so much more about beer and knew so many more people on the beer scene that we just started letting him buy whatever he wanted. And we had a sort of handshake deal, which was look, man, get buy whatever you want. As long as you can hand sell it at the bar, it's fine. Just, we don't want to sit on the the inventory too long. And so he was going out getting stuff that like nobody was getting in town. Exactly. And it's just one of those things. Like he just loved beer. He was upstairs. He was there for like a decade. We let him do his thing. And the club got to benefit from it and, you know, all that stuff was sold down there and everyone was excited about it too. But I, yeah, to Paul, to your point of like, what other club in the city has this like, you know, organism that it's working with the restaurant upstairs and all these other parts. It's like, there's, you know, I think of Yoshi's as a place that has incredible food and beverage and, and great service and hospitality, but it's like, you know, who's going to let someone run with a beer program down like the deepest rabbit hole, we'll let him, you know, and just, just go for it.
0: Yeah. And in, when I was working for the New York wine and grape foundation, this was pretty cool. Grant, John, (laughs) this was like, had been a goal of mine for so long. So I love barbecue with wine and I, and I always tried (laughs) to sort of convince people that in particular, the wines that have been a big part of my career from places like New York state Long Island, the Finger Lakes, the Hudson Valley. In fact, Grant, I'm pretty sure when I went there with my parents back in 08, we had a bottle of Shin Estate Chardonnay from Long Island. Wow. With dinner. Um, yeah. and, and also, I mean, you guys had left with Charlie stuff from Michigan. Maybe even yeah, buying it. Right? gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always yeah. was just sort of making a bunch of noise about. These particular wines from places like New York, Michigan, where the acid levels are high, the the alcohol levels are low, the wines are super food friendly and just have all that sort of snap, crackle and pop that you want to to just drink, whether you're having them with food or not. And so we did, (laughs) Grant, you and I remember this was like one of my, uh, I don't know like my magnum opus of, uh, of events when I was working for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, it was a 20 person industry wine dinner of like four courses of barbecue and at least four or five flights of Finger Lakes wines in particular. I think the first flight was all sparkling wines. Second was maybe like Pinot Gris. And then there was a Gewurz flight. There was Riesling. And then finally, Pinot Noir and Cabernet Franc maybe it was even six flights and I just like had wanted to do something like that for so long and finally had the opportunity and it was it was super fun but it was also sort of like it did not exactly go how I had planned because so like around 20 industry people attended and I was hoping that everyone was going to be drinking and eating and and sort of just acknowledging the wines with the food, but it ended up being more like a room full of like 20 sommeliers taking notes and like tasting and spitting. And I, and I was just – and Grant, I think you and I messed it up by like walking around the table clockwise and pouring open-handed and all that. We were yeah. we were not like enhancing that room to, to get rowdier whatsoever, which is kind of what I intended. But I don't know. It, it actually I guess sort of proved my point that that food should be taken seriously with those wines and then, and then John it was a Monday and we hooked it up such that in the budget anyone who wanted to stay and go down into the club to see the Mingus band could and we brought all the leftover wines down there so it's just this like amazing night of food wine good industry people and then the mingus band Wow. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think I'd describe it as like equally epic and insane and trying to like prove, correct me if I'm wrong, your theory about essentially like Alsatian wine and cuisine and it's like parallel to American barbecue and American wines, which I I think, you know, we did a test run in the back room one afternoon of, which was just you know 20 open bottles and a bunch of smoked meats on the table and just opening and pouring and tasting and um, that's what we were trying to convey to those folks and yeah to your point they all got the notepads out and got real serious about it.
0: That's right I I, <laughs> I kind of forgot about that. So yeah I so for the same site um, that this podcast gets put out on, I had written a story about how similar what f- how similar, Food in Alsace is to Southern American barbecue because in Alsace, there's this heavy Germanic influence. It's a lot of meats. It's a lot of slow, smoked, cooked like ham and sausages. And then it's all these like cheesy potato sort of dishes. And then you're drinking Alsace wines, Gewürztraminer, Riesling, Pinot Gris, Muscat, and Pinot Noir. Really, really, really satiating wines when when you have food with all that salt and fat. So yeah, I mean, to me, it it was a no brainer to pair that cuisine with those cool climate wines from from the Northeast, from New York, um, and yeah, I think we I think we determined that it definitely is sort of a we, a really cool marriage, this like small corner pocket of cold climate viticulture and traditional Southern American barbecue, which I will never stop <laughs> indulging, for sure. So, musicians that you saw at the club, memorable performances. John, what do you got?
1: Oh, man. So many. I went, uh, Dave Douglas gave Kenny Wheeler uh, one of those Festival of New Trumpet Lifetime Achievement Award. um, Yeah, Lifetime Achievement Awards. Can't remember which year exactly. This, this would have been 2011, maybe 2012, and I went to every night of that because Kenny performed, and he performed with brass octets, he performed with a big band, uh, you know, small chamber ensemble, and everything. So that, that turned out to be Kenny Wheeler's last run uh, that he ever did in America before he passed a few years later. And so to get to witness that at the Jazz Standard just made total sense. Because his music was down and dirty, it was soulful. It was the classiest there was too, and everyone uh, supported. You know, like everyone fell in love with it more than than any sort of surface level thing. So it was the perfect uh, analogy to the the jazz standard. I saw Lee Konitz play there several times. I definitely went and saw the Bingus Band play weeks weeks in a row. Just just to do it as, like, coming to New York and being a part of it, you know? Um, yeah, just Bill Charlotte. I saw a really seminal Bill, Bill Charlotte show there. Just just, just endless, endless amounts. A- any given week, you could see someone that you wouldn't normally get to see in New York or that was performing regularly in the world at all. They just decided to do. I saw Czar Lawrence there, uh, who was a tenor, like a post-college tenor player, who played with McCoy Tyner in the seventies. And
2: yeah, it was, it was great.
1: Oh man, that weekend with with Nicholas Payton there was insane. <laughs> just to get this, just to know that you were sitting there seeing that history, 30, 40 years after it happened, like so, you know, just incredible. That, just a con- consistent lineup of great musicians but different angles on the music i think i saw andy bay there back in the day too and it was just just incredible like like, things you wouldn't think of as as presentable you know what i mean but but that was the place to go like like just you know the greatest food and like we talked about but with with the most varied high level programming in all of new york in the 20 years I've been there.
0: Yeah. I can't believe I didn't write Charlotte down on my list. I definitely saw the Charlotte trio there at least twice. Um, I saw them all... there.
1: I saw them there with, with, they had Houston person as a guest. Yeah. And if you're, if you're talking about like high level classy, you know, there's not going to be anyone storming out of that. Cause that's the classiest and the jazziest of classy jazz. that <laughs> You're going to get, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I like, Young pianists or musicians, I tend to not check out Charlotte. And then I remember reading this interview with Brad Maldau and it was like, they asked him, what are a couple other pianists that you'd like to check out? And he was like, "Bill Charlotte. <laughs> and, you know, I, I never, I, I think his, yeah, his playing is just sort of a unique understanding of the American songbook, but with, you know, any amount of modern vocabulary that he needs. Um, And it was, I I think when I saw him, it was always Peter Washington and, and Kenny Washington with the trio. But like what you said about the history, John, because the most memorable performances that, that I wrote down had a lot to do with that. So George Coleman with Harold Mayburn playing piano messed me up. And I mean, those guys, George Coleman, uh, forgive me. is Is he still with us? I think so. I think so too. I think Don't know if he's performing him. anymore. Is it was probably a couple years ago when 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 I saw him? But with Harold Mayburn on on piano, who played with West Montgomery, and, I, and that was a um, just sort of a like scary feeling seeing a pianist who performed with, recorded with, and is on video with West Montgomery. for for me as a guitarist was, uh, I don't know, just something eerie about it. And then, Grant, I think you'll have something to say about this. And I can think of at least two performances, and these really stick out in my head as being some of the best performances really that I've seen anywhere at any club is Dr. Lonnie Smith.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Doc is incredible. Um, And, you know, Doc's a great example of someone for me on a personal level as a musician, you know, growing up playing music for so long, thinking, you know, that was going to be my whole career is, is performing or teaching. um, And then ending up, you know, I did I worked at the Blue Note for five years before getting to the standard. And I think a perspective on music that I would have never had had I not worked at clubs is seeing a bunch of artists that I would probably not have spent my own money to see. So like John, you mentioned, like when you get to New York, you're like, okay, I got to go see this guy, this show, this is the residency. You know, you got all that like bucket list of shows and people you want to see. Right. Um, But when you're working at a club, all these people are coming to you and you know, you might be sitting through a show of like, I don't know, the Manhattan transfer or something. And you're like, you know, this isn't a show I probably would have like sought out. Right. But you still see the whole thing and you learn a lot about it. Um, and so it was interesting because at the blue note, I got a lot of those people that, you know, are famous in the jazz world, but maybe weren't my cup of tea. And then at the standard, I feel like I got my like third education in music. And Dr. Lonnie's one of those guys that for some reason, somehow I just never checked him out, like growing up, but then watching him do his thing, like two shows a night, a couple weeks a year for a full week, like just blowing your mind, like set after set. And he's like. You know, he's not that young anymore, but he still just brings it, like, every set. And that was one of those ones that, you know, him doing, like, a cover of, like, Paper Tiger by Beck or something. You're just like, what am I watching right now?
0: Well, and the, the atmosphere in the club when he was there was just different from any other time that I can think of. And it reminded me of seeing music in Detroit. Like it, it just felt like very much this communal hang where he always had a lot of family there and the room just had way more of a vibrant energy.
2: Yeah. He could also get the room quieter than maybe any other artist. Like he, he just on a purely on a volume basis could be very dramatic in the show. And get the audience to go with him and go up and down in volume to like hooting and hollering all the way down to like a whisper where like, you know, someone back in the kitchen drops a fork and everyone in the club hears it type of thing. It, that was impressive.
0: Now, was it, was that his Hammond B3 organ there?
2: Yeah. So that lived, it like at, the lived at the
0: club, right?
2: Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure he had a few, but like that was one that lived there. And John, you'll know this from the green room. I think it was probably where a lot of, a lot of people set their beers down or their luggage <laughs> down on the on the leslie and the speaker in the back but uh yeah it it lived there for a very long time
0: i mean that's that's always a boon when a club has its own hammond b3 and that just brings up more shows that i saw there i mean definitely you saw at least two joey de francesco shows the trio and and i think even some larger ensembles and uh um, Larry
2: didn't you do an organ trio I sure did. With like Gary and, I was just yeah. gonna say
1: like that. probably used it. That, that was the that was the exact B three we used. <laughs> that was living at the. Oh, yeah, and who and how was wild was the that group? Is. It was Gary Versace and the She Waits was playing drums. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, just to be a part of the <laughs> the the lineage of people who got to lead a gig at this incredible club, and that was actually one of the most fun gigs i've ever had as a leader because <laughs> you know you've got that perfect amalgamation of support from the staff uh you know that you're gonna get fed well you know that there's some great beers and wine on, on tap and you know that the you know the sound man and everyone around is encouraging you to really just stretch and, and take chances and and the club is fostering that there's, you can't really say that for every club in new york every every high profile club in new york you know but when you were going to the jazz standard you knew that that was part of it and So when I, when I heard that the Jazz Standard was closing, I, I thought of that gig with, with Gary and sheet a lot that day.
0: I got to shout out one more organ group that I saw when that was uh, with Pat Martino mm. and definitely saw him two or three times there. I think when it was organ, it was with Pat Bianchi and who was playing drums? Carmen? Carmen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did, you, you, you yeah. did you go to Juilliard with him?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's a good buddy of mine. I'm on I'm actually on his first his his leader album.
0: Cool.
1: Yeah, I've known him forever. He's great.
0: So I think it, it's worth talking a little bit about how these things come to happen. And among the musician chatter on the internet, there there has been some really nice things said and and John, you've touched on some of this, and that is how well the musicians were treated. You know, I'm gonna go out and say that I think Danny Meyer, who is the restaurateur who who owned the club, you know, took a lot of flack this year as restaurant groups and restaurants all over the country and world are are suffering. And the 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 club and the restaurant above it, Blue Smoke, I felt were always sort of slighted when when the ecosystem of restaurants and restaurant criticism would talk about Union Square Hospitality, Danny Meyer's restaurant group. And I never really understood that. I mean, I did, when I worked at Gramercy Tavern, also a part of the group, like my last day working at Gramercy Tavern, right. They give you, they, when you have like, when you get to your first year or whatever in that company, they give you like $150 to spend at any of the restaurants in the company. And so I I was like just over my second year. So I had just got that. And then, you know, the restaurants are always great to the staff anyway. And on my last day at Gramercy, Grant, you'll remember this. I brought a group to the club to go see the Mingus Band. And, you know, in addition to that, and then doing that big wine event there, writing that story and just hanging out there all the time, I never really understood why more people in the company, and this is sad because a lot of the people who worked in that company didn't even know that that club and and that blue smoke were a part of Union Square hospitality. And not that it really affected the business because really, who cares if the industry doesn't know? You don't care. You want to be busy, right? And uh, you know, cer- certainly uh, those restaurants were profitable for a very long time, but there there's always murmurings about the owners of these places when they close. And it's, you know, again, I guess I'm going to defend restaurant owners. It's it's not their responsibility to pump their personal wealth into these places if they are no longer profitable or if, you know, owners and landlords can't get together, you know, on, on new rent agreements. And Danny has put personal wealth into his own restaurants. But I just wanted to throw that out there uh, in defense of the restaurant group a little bit because we're in tough times. But Grant, Got anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, having seen the back end of not only this club, but, you know, really having an intimate understanding of the operations and the financials and just everything that goes into it, it's really hard to see it from an outside perspective. And I think it's hard to explain it to an outside perspective um, in so many ways, whether whether we're talking about this or even back when clubs are up and running, you know, musicians, when it comes to just fees of like, you know, what is fair compensation and just knowing all the numbers that go into operating a business like that, um, you know, having come from the music world and then gotten into this world and seeing the backside of it and, you know, seeing how the sausage is made. So, so to speak, you know, I feel like I have a, a fair appreciation for all sides of it. And, you know, one piece of this equation that I think, you know, the extension that people maybe don't know about or think about is, you know, Paul, to your point of like, Blue Smoke and Jazz Standard are a single business entity that had a bunch of investors at some point. And, you know, Danny is the figurehead and and CEO of a big company. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of parties involved in these things. And even after that, you know, a lot of people in the restaurant world are pointing the finger at the landlords, right. And saying, well, Hey, you know, they didn't fairly negotiate with me or whatever, but you know, no no one's cutting landlords a whole lot of slack these days, but if you're a landlord and you own a building and you have a mortgage, well, you answer to the bank and the bank might be calling the shots. So, you know, a lot of these things are not one size fits all. And, you know, I don't, I can't speak to that relationship with the landlord at that location, but I do know that with a lot of closures, things come down to those sort of, original terms of the lease or what were the original terms with investors of that particular location and those things get really complex and pretty high above my pay grade and mm-hmm. one thing i've learned is that it, there's just a lot of complexity in those things and it's unfortunate but it's also going to provide a lot of opportunity in the next couple of years there's going to be great leases there's going to be great deals and some of the best clubs in the city that i love like smalls and 55 bar and like those sort of grittier places in the village came about from probably really good rent deals, you know, and then building a following and just grinding it out. So I'm hoping to see some of those in the next five years of like some more of the, the low key off the beaten path spots.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so true what you say about, you know, landlords and, and just mortgages. I, I mean, it's like try explaining to the bank supporting musicians, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, John, do you remember the first time you played at the club?
1: Oh, you know what I think one of the i mean the thing that that people don't really talk about with the jazz standard too is um that it was part of there there was an incredible outreach aspect to it too on Sundays it hosted um you know brunches. And and also kids concerts where, you know, inner city schools kids could come in and, and check out some shows. So I think I think my first shows there were playing either a brunch or a or a kids concert or whatever. But I do remember that I mean, for my career, the most important show that I that I played was, was at the Jazz Standard. And it was either in twenty eleven or twenty twelve. And I had mentioned the Kenny Wheeler set. Uh, week that I had gone to see every show at uh, the last night of that week, so the Sunday night, Kenny was presented with the the award by Dave Douglas for the Lifetime Achievement Trumpet Award, and part of the deal was that was that Kenny had to play with a with a quintet and play a bunch of his songs for two sets, and I had been lucky enough in the last the year before that, to play with Kenny several times out in London and at the Ottawa Jazz Fest. And so when Dave asked Kenny to put together a a New York quintet, he actually asked for me to play with him. So that was just, uh, for me, that was like the highlight of my whole life to that point. And um, I hadn't headlined or whatever at the Jazz Standard before, and I definitely hadn't played with uh, Dave Holland or Craig Taborn or Rudy Royston before who made up the rest of his New York quintet. And we played the tunes and I, and wow. I was just I was just in complete awe of Kenny every time I met him and every time I played with him and, and all the years leading up to getting to play or meet, meet him. So when he picked all the music, I memorized all of it. And I got up on stage in rehearsal. I had all the music memorized. I wasn't looking at anything. And Kenny's like, oh, don't you need the music for this? And I was like, Kenny, I've been, I've been a fan of yours for my entire adult life. I've got I've got these tunes ready to go. And Dave, who presented the concert and presented the award to Kenny, noticed that, that I didn't have any music and that I was focused on Kenny and and I was you know very respectful to him and and I, you know during both sets at the Jazz Standard. And so afterwards, Dave gave me a call and was just kind of like, So, you didn't need any music on that? Nope, nope. I, I've been a fan of Kenny's for forever. So, I, I learned all the music. So, I'm putting together a new quintet and I was wondering if you'd be the saxophone player in it. So, my career changed dramatically from getting to play at the Jazz Standard because uh, getting to ask to be uh, one fifth of Dave Douglas's new quintet at the time led to so many other possibilities led led to so many tours led to so many other gigs and recording possibilities just from that visibility and it you know it all happened at the jazz standard and i'm never going to forget that
0: that was the quintet that toured all 50 states right
1: yeah we he, he so dave turned 50 at a certain point during that quintet's life and the the goal was to was to play in all 50 states we we got like 35 or 36 states in but we, we didn't quite make all 50 but like it was it was awesome to get to play it in some really random play,
0: places yeah know? what were some of the weirder states that uh you know probably didn't have a jazz club that you played in
1: <laughs> you know like you know like how do you if, if you don't get to play in rhode island much like and we, he found like a rock theater so we played like That's upstairs great. in some rock theater in rhode island. we played at some in some tiny town in iowa that the night we played there, the mayor came to the show and gave a a speech to the small auditorium and declared it Dave Douglas Day at that place. Because it was so That's special great. for them. You know, Louisiana, you know. Um, you know, we were trying hard to get to Hawaii. I really was shooting for a Hawaii thing. But get to get to get to spend time in Oregon. What about and Alaska? We didn't, get, we didn't get to Alaska either. That you know, that would have been awesome. Maybe for his
2: 60th birthday, right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, my whole career changed because of the Jazz Standard hosting that that festival and having Kenny Wheeler there and stuff.
2: Man, that's heavy. Paul, what's the wine world equivalent of memorizing all the charts? Is that like memorizing (laughs) the wine list? Like you're working Gramercy Tavern. You don't even need to open the wine list. You just got like, oh, the 97 Montrachet. Like that's heavy. I love that.
0: Well, here's a here's the difference, there, Grant. Anything you need to know in the wine world is a simple Google search away, but you can't Google your way through the Kenny Wheeler book.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's legit, man.
0: That's very legit. Um. Okay. Question for both of you: Why do people hate jazz, John? <laughs> uh, because
1: because they've been. Uh, inundated with pop culture making fun of jazz or pretending it's pretentious or too hard to understand, but if you if you bring a normal person into a jazz club and you and they have a good time and they have good food and drinks, just like they would at any night at the jazz standard, and you have a band <laughs> that's interacting at a, at a high level and and communicating with the audience, those people almost always leave the club like, wow, huh. I didn't think jazz to be so cool and fun to listen to. Um, There's just, there's just so much in, in, in pop culture that makes fun of it. And I understand it. It's right there.
0: So yeah, I've taken a lot of people to a jazz club for the first time, whether it's been girlfriends or friends or fam, whoever, right. You take them to that first time and they go to the jazz stand or the village Vanguard or smalls or somewhere cool like that. Right. And you, 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 you sit through the show and you look at them, they're having a great time and you leave and they're like, wow, that was so great. But here's the thing. The next week when you're like, hey, we're, we're, we're going to another jazz club or we're, we're going to, you know, chamber music at Lincoln Center or whatever. They're like, <laughs> okay, all right, we can do that. And they're like a little bit less. And then the, the next week comes and this is just, nor- we all go see music on a regular basis, right? Yeah. Then that third week in a row comes in and they're like, what are we, uh, we're, uh, another jazz club? But we we just did that. You know, like, it, people will be amazed that first time they walk into the Village Vanguard, but they don't want to go back.
1: I mean, attention span
0: stuff, uh, you know, like,
1: if they they had a great time and they were committed to really being a part of an art form, they would go back again, right? But that's, but if you want to stay at home and, and, watch Netflix, it's, it's hard for, to justify, you know, a $20 cover and, and a drink minimum when the person just does actually just is totally fine at home. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough sell, but, but there's a, there's a certain population that are into <laughs> challenging themselves and, and hearing something created for the first time. And not everyone's going to be into that. And I, you know, as a jazz musician, if you're not, if you're not comfortable with it being a niche market, then you're really going to sell out in some weird ways to try to make up for that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm an, I, mean, I'm gonna you know, I mean, it phrase.
1: took, it, it took, it took the, it took the jazz standard. It took a global pandemic. that was completely mismanaged <laughs> in order for the jazz standard to close down. And you know, that, that should say enough. I mean, without, without the pandemic, that club was thriving. That was that was one of the places to go see music and there were and that's not a small room by any means. That's not like a basement like a small's or something, or a Mesrael, right? Like that's that's a pretty large room. And for yeah, that thing to last that so long it. with no problems until this pandemic that wiped tens of thousands of restaurants and other non jazz things out. It's just another casualty of that. But there were there was support through the most popular bands like the maria schneider orchestra was always sold out through the thanksgiving weekends right but when but when the jazz center gave snake oil tim burns band one of the most experimental bands ever right when it gave them a couple days in a row the jazz center had a lot of people come to it and and persevered through that thing so it really took this this insane (laughs) uh, unimaginable pandemic to to wipe out one of these great rooms you know what i mean
0: well, one thing I always used to say to my like single lady friends when they would complain about not being able to meet men in New York City, I was just say, go to there's a, a death there's farm. A basement full of them I mean, on 27 dudes as far as the eye can see. <laughs> but none, none of them ever took me up on that. Okay, Grant. But they, they also might
2: judge you in the middle of a show. Rightly <laughs> <least> so. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm gonna say that. Maybe, and this is where I think the brilliance of, of Seth Abramson booking that club the way he did, and sort of playing with what people's expectations of jazz are, come into play. But I actually think people, normal quote unquote people, as you called them, John, um, <laughs> normal people's perception of jazz. Um, the issue is that maybe I, for me, maybe the word's too broad. Um, and and then it can capture so many different things. And so people associate things with it and then have mixed expectations when they come in. So that, yeah, they come in thinking one thing and they go, wow, this is great. I had a good time. But, you know, to put artists like Renee Marie and the Spanish Harlem Orchestra and, you know, Randy Weston and James Cotton on the same stage, the day after Snake Oil, you know, there's these it's it's even I saw this at the blue note. I remember one week we had a uh, Kenny G play and, you know, we're pushing like almost hundred dollar tickets. And then like the next night you have Ron Carter. Right. And like the sound coming off the stage couldn't be more different between those two acts, but you're, you're trying to tell people it's quote unquote the same thing, right? This is both of these are jazz, right? I mean, depending on who you ask. Right. But it's such a broad term that I think that's what's hard but I also think that's why Jazz Standard was so successful because it brought people into the fold and it also made them stretch a little, it challenged them, you know, if you came on Monday and heard Mingus and then you came on Tuesday and heard Snake Oil, you're like you're going on a little bit of a different trip on the two nights but you're still going to have a great time
0: Yeah, I'm unconvinced by both of your answers um- <laughs> Maybe it's just because it's a four letter word. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, one thing that I think is pretty cool right now. I, mean, a, I mean,
1: how, do, yeah, I mean, how, we can, we can get, we can try to figure
0: this out. Like, <laughs> is why does anyone like jazz? I mean, I, I find that people like to name drop jazz musicians whenever they want to intellectually flex, you know, like they're not really fans, but if you're in conversation and for some reason it comes up, you know, you know, someone's going to be like, yes, yes, Diz, yard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yardbird, yeah, Monk. So it comes in <laughs> handy when, when people want to intellectually flex. So I'm, I'm surprised um that maybe, you know, some of those people don't go check out some more shows so they can name drop a little bit more. But... There's some really great documentaries that are out there right now. And since we're all home with a a lot of time on our hands or a little bit more time on our hands these days, three come to mind right now. That if I was going to try to get somebody into jazz and they were, I don't know, they liked music, they were open-minded, but just didn't know anything about it. So the first one would probably be the Lee Morgan documentary. Have you guys both seen that? I have not. I
1: have not seen that one yet.
0: It's called I Called Him Morgan. I mean the you you obviously both know. But th- this is not a spoiler. Everyone knows that right. he was shot and killed by his wife. And his wife is the one who who is narrating the documentary.
1: Yeah.
0: So yeah. that's a pretty incredible.
1: <laughs> it's uh, a fascinating story for sure. Story.
0: <laughs> you yeah. That narrative. Uh, <laughs> and when when it's deep. And the cool thing about that one is obviously there's great footage and and music. And that particular music, we're talking Lee Morgan, you know, 60s, early 70s, super grooving, hard bop, right? Interviews with Wayne Shorter and Jimmy Merritt. And it's a bunch of really, really hip people. And it's a bunch of really fun music. So that's a good one. Have either of you seen the, the new-ish Miles documentary on Netflix?
2: What's that oh, I think called? you're giving us uh, some stuff to go watch here.
0: What's oh, that cool? called? I
2: haven't even heard of this.
0: I think it's just called Miles. Uh, it's, it's on Netflix. Also good interviews with Wayne Shorter, with Jimmy Cobb, with, let's see. I mean, a lot of people, his, uh, what's her name, the dancer um, that was on the cover of Someday My Prince Will Come. Uh, Francis, Francis Taylor, right? Uh lots of oh, and even I think she just died recently. Juliette Greco, the French singer that uh he had like an affair with when he went to Paris for the first time. That one's really good. And then there's also a really cool Bill Evans documentary, and that in particular is cool because it it touches really thoroughly on his whole time with Miles' band. You know, so people should like that because everybody's obsessed with Miles. And and they just really get granular on what it was like to be a white person in that band at the time. Um, and how, how difficult it was for Bill Evans to go and play in all these clubs and black neighborhoods and cities, uh, and and you know, Miles and Paul Chambers and Cannibal Ederly would, would defend him and and tell their their fans and their people like he's up here because we want him to be up here. Really, really interesting, the Bill Evans one. And then of course, interviews with all his various trio members, Chuck Israel and um Eddie Gomez and pretty great.
1: See Paul here I was thinking you haven't seen
0: any of them? <laughs>
1: I, I was thinking you were gonna tell us that the great jazz movies to watch were Whiplash and La La Land.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean I think we talked about that once didn't we like, <laughs>
1: probably <laughs> <laughs> Hey man I love whiplash. Did you really yeah
0: yes so the thing that i had (laughs) trouble with with whiplash everybody loved whiplash right it was like a really popular music movie and so i saw it and they're using jazz as this trope but it just the, the music was pretty awful like it was it would have been pretty easy to get someone to make better arrangements right and then also just like Their dynamic in school was nothing what it's like to be in school. But I know none of that matters, but it's just hard to get over that.
1: (laughs) It was a great comedy, man.
2: (laughs) You guys are on your own on this one.
1: (laughs) Great. You got to check out Whiplash, man.
2: Those those are movies that you know. Especially working at clubs for a decade, people come up to you, and John, the normal people, go, "Oh, you work at a jazz club? That's so cool! Have you seen La La Land? Yeah, baby." And in working in hospitality, you know, everyone's got to leave happy, and you just look at them, and you're you're just thinking, "How do I how do I break this person's heart?" Yeah, you know, like <laughs> the last thing I'm going to do is go home and watch a Ryan Gosling movie about jazz when I just worked like eight Kenny G shows. <laughs> it's just not in the cards I might be across the street at, at a comedy club till 2 in the morning
0: But not watching that one Alright, that this might be a good place To wrap
2: Wait, I gotta tell a quick story Because this, this popped into my head uh, Speaking of, of late nights After working shows at the Blue Note um, John, I don't, you, I don't know if this story made its way around to you, but, um, one of, you know, my, my goals as the manager of jazz standard was to always bring more people into the fold that worked at our company. And so I would, I took all of our blue smoke managers out on a, a jazz club crawl one night. So we like hit the early set of Dizzy's. I think we saw, we actually did see Mike Marino, you know, the sun was still out. We like crushed a drink and like ran downtown, popped into the Blue Note, popped into like zinc. We, I, you know, I talked to everyone I knew in town. I was like, "Look, we're only coming in for like fifteen minutes. I'm just showing these guys around. We we'll get them a drink." We ended up at Corner Bistro, like you're supposed to do.
1: Yes.
2: And Tom is bartending, right? Yes, my man. And Tom, you know, I I hesitate to call him surly, but <laughs> let's just say he he's got high outer walls. He's you know until you get to know him, he's not he's not the chattiest guy and we're there. And and my buddy says to him, is this a John Arabicon record that you're you're and Tom looks at him like he's out of his mind. And he goes, it is like, why do you know that he was almost like upset with us for being there and knowing like having like this inside secret. And he's like, wait, have you just been playing this whole record? And Tom was like, yeah, how do you like, what is happening right now? And, and my buddy was uh, one of the booking assistants for the clubs. And these guys just went down that like deep West Village late night rabbit hole talking about music. I was like, I can't believe I'm at Corner Bistro and you're just like playing a John Arabagon record and I'm eating a burger and having a beer. Like it was like the thing from when you're 17 and you move to New York and like this is this is what's supposed to happen. Like, it was one of those one of those incredible nights.
0: I mean, I've, sp- I did, I've that, spent- that didn't happen, Grant. John. That's really,
2: <laughs> oh, it was. It might have been a dream, but it happened. I promise.
1: Oh, well, I I spent a lot of drunk late nights at the corner bistro and hanging with Tom and stuff. So, so that man, that's really cool to hear. I, I have not heard that, but that's awesome.
2: I just thought it was incredible. Tom, Tom's just sitting there slinging drinks, telling people how bad alcohol is for him, and just spinning the record. <laughs> it's like this guy's like a West Village prophet. Now you guys need, if you guys
1: are into Tom, you need to check out some of his movies.
2: I've heard, yeah, I've heard
0: that uh, he's... Go on. Does- <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tom, Tom is he's a great actor. He's a great avant-garde actor. And he's, he's starred in and helped produce like dozens of movies. Tom White, wow. look him up.
0: All right. Well, that's a happy <laughs> note to end on. The Corner Bistro and, oh, he's, he, and yeah. learning something new. Um, let's let's hope that one doesn't rest in peace too oh man yeah I know right truth truth John anything to plug any recordings or anything like that coming out
1: Uh, well I just released an album Uh, I have this band called I don't hear nothing but the blues and uh, we have Mick Barr that's Mick Barr that's Mike Pride and we have a third edition out and it includes Miss Ava Mendoza and the, band, the 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 album's called Anatomical Snuffbox and you can find it at my my Bandcamp page John Rogan Bandcamp. Nice.
0: And uh I should mention that you've you've left us and moved to back to Chicago from where you hail.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, in yep. the middle of the middle of the pandemic, that was fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we we, we can't blame you certainly. <laughs> um I don't like losing people, but uh Chicago, no, you, know what, I, you know what?
1: You know what? I was. I mean, yeah, I'm here in Chicago. If you would have moved to the
0: West Coast, I would have been like, "Good riddance, see you never." But
1: <laughs> I mean, Chicago's so. Cool. I mean, so I played. Actually, I, I have a new quintet that I put together because I won this. I won this grant back in in August when nothing was going on. I was fortunate enough to win a Chamber Music America 2020 New Jazz Works Grant and um and so thank you chamber music america it's awesome so i so i was exiled in south dakota where i spent a lot of the um pandemic and i wrote this whole new suite of music for myself on soprano saxophone and ray anderson on trombone one of my all-time heroes and matt mitchell on piano and chris lightcap on bass and dan weiss on drums and last week we debuted the piece at smalls actually so I'm still going to be in New York a ton. I, I did the 12-hour drive from Chicago to to New York in one shot. And I listened to 12 hours of weather report on my way out there, which was a trip. Yeah. Wow. Think about, think about that. Think about doing that. <laughs> and it was awesome. We played two gigs in New York and Long Island. And it was awesome. And the band is ridiculously cool. And I was just cracking up on stage the whole time. And we've got a tour in April and stuff. So I'm still like an East Coast tour in April and so I'm still going to be I'm still going to be bugging everybody in New York. It's uh Chicago's close enough to just be a pain in everyone's butt.
0: What uh what do you see though for yourself in Chicago on the horizon? Like can you can you imagine having a weekly at one of the clubs there which hopefully stay open?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll see. We moved here. I mean, my family's all here. I've got a 2-year-old and she's awesome and it'll be great for her to get to know her grandparents and her cousins and everything. Um, but we moved here. My wife got transferred for work, and it's just great to be back home. But I, I'm not are you quite still sure. In pretty good
0: touch with like the local scene there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got a bunch of friends. Uh, you know, Jason Stein and I are really close, and it'll it'll be great to catch up with that. But you know, this COVID thing and with everything being closed and yeah, et cetera, et cetera, it's just hard to tell what's going to happen. So just try to practice, try to keep composing and keep churning out albums and try to see what happens. I, I really don't know, like ask me in a year and I'll be able to answer your question. I think. All
0: right. Last question for you, John. Yeah. Where are you in transcribing everything that Coltrane ever recorded? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Giving away my secrets, man. No. Um. So my, uh, how do I start? So my, my, I, I've been going through a lot of transcriptions of, the, the famous the, the lineage tenor saxophone players. So, Colin Hawkins, Lester Young, Joe Henderson, Wayne Shorter, Dexter Gordon, Sonia Rollins. Um, and so, when I got to the Coltrane one, I'm like, how does Coltrane get from ornithology on alto in 1947 to 20 years later playing whatever that is on interst- interstellar space? Like, that's just, it doesn't seem conceivable. So, I collected as much. Coltrane that was available on record uh during this project and I started from the beginning and transcribed as much as I could as much as I had access to and so since in the year or two or three since I've been really hardcore into it there's been what three new Coltrane records or something right so so there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff for me to still do and obviously Andrew White RIP is the master who supposedly did like 800 45 Coltrane solos or something like that. So he's a master, but for me that the, the goal was to figure out the building blocks from A to Z to triple A to triple quadruple Z. And I got to the end. I transcribed the, the solos, the, my, my favorite thing solo on a, you know, all the concert, but there were definitely ones that I missed in between because they weren't available or I didn't have them or I just didn't get to them or something on um, with the late period, I pretty much did everything, you know, post *Love Supreme*. I did everything I get my hands on because that was a really fascinating section of, of his life for me. And that's just, it's interesting. You were talking about jazz documentaries and I was wondering if you were going to bring up Chasing Train, the, the Coltrane documentary that came out, what, like three or four years ago.
0: Yeah, uh, because I, because I that's a, even watched it. What'd you think of that one?
1: I mean, that's a great documentary. They they found some some pictures. They found some video, home video. They found some scores and everything, and they talked to a lot of people. My one criticism of it, uh, maybe that's just my own angle, is that when they got to the post Love Supreme period, so this is 1965 to his death in mid 1967, they really skimmed on that part of Coltrane. Um, they had Dr. Cornell West on there, like waving his hands and saying the Coltrane had gone crazy, and then you had Carlos Santana saying, "Well, he was just in a spiritual thing, so it's beyond uh, analyzing." But if you analyze 165 post-Love Supreme Coltrane solos, like I did, it's that's that's malarkey, as our president-elect says. <laughs> uh, there, there, there is there is reason. There's there's thought, and it was just. A half a century ahead of everything and so now people are finally getting around myself but also way more qualified people are getting around to analyzing it and describing in minute detail what exactly was going on in those dozen or so late Coltrane records so anyone out there who's list- looking for jazz documentaries if you watch Chase and Train it's awesome but don't listen to that part about the late Coltrane thing there is so much logic and beauty in that in those late records. I mean, Paul, we had a late night hang at a bar once where you put on uh, live at the Village Vanguard again. Do you remember that?
0: Um, no. you had
1: access. You had access. You had access to like whatever that bar's turntable system was or whatever, and they had no, oh, no, no. It was it was Spotify or something. It was Spotify or something, and you put on okay. live at the Village Vanguard again, and we listened to live at the Village Vanguard again. All the way through, while drinking like craft beers or something, hmm. and at the time, this is this is years ago when we were you know when we were playing a lot, and uh, at the time we were like ah oh, it's like we it's so it's so out it's so out but now that I've checked really studied this stuff like that's just a really monumental beautiful perfect record.
0: It must have been quite a jazz trance because. Yeah, <laughs> I can only relive it in my dreams. I guess.
1: Right. It happened. I swear.
0: Grant. Final words about the club. Oh
2: man, I you know I just think when people can, you know, a, a lot of people are out of jobs now, and and or money's tight, but where, wherever possible, support the scene, support the musicians, support all those cool independent wineries and, and breweries and, you know, keep it going. Getting out there and putting your money where your mouth is goes a long way, especially these days. Um, and that's the thing that will keep it going in the future. And, yeah, keep the scene alive.
0: Right on. Well, the the concept is available, a jazz club with barbecue. So hopefully somebody takes that and runs with it. All right. And it worked well for
2: about 20 years on 27th Street.
0: Did. Thank you both. Uh, happy holidays to you both. Shout out to Dave Miller, guitarist and composer of our intro and outro music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com. And yeah, when everybody can, support. Live jazz. Check out jazz for the first time if you never had. Check out one of those documentaries that we mentioned. Check out John's latest recording with his band, Don't Know Nothing But the Blues. And we'll see you next episode. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks, Paul.